Welcome to The Pin Factory, the new podcast from the Adam Smith Institute. This podcast was recorded on Thursday, the 11th of June. My name is Matthew Lesh. I'm the head of research at the ASI. Today, I'll be joined by our director of external affairs, Morgan Schottelmeyer, as well as Sam Bowman, who is the director of competition policy at the Law and Economic Center and a fellow and former executive director of the ASI. Uh, before we get into the podcast today, though, where we're going to be discussing uh, the George Floyd death, the Black Lives Matter protests, we're going to be taking a look at the corona economic impact and as well as China and foreign investment. I just want to explain a little bit about what this podcast is. Uh, as Adam Smith says in The Wealth of Nations, uh, we depend a lot of our prosperity on our ability to work together. He uses the example of pin factory, where one person working alone could barely produce a single pin but working together a group of people could produce thousands and thousands of pins every day that kind of specialization and trade is what has given us the economic miracle of our time the pin factory will seek to unpack the many parts that make up our increasingly complex world each week asi staff fellows and special guests will go beyond the headlines provide a deeper understanding of the stories that is shaping our world so please do subscribe to the pin factory in your podcast app and give us a, a five-star rating if you enjoy the podcast or give us your feedback as we're very keen to hear george floyd has now been laid to rest in houston uh, after dying a few weeks ago now in minneapolis when a police officer held their knee on his neck for eight minutes. So Morgan, what's the original story here? Why is George Floyd so symbolically important? And what, what's been happening since he died? And, and what's, what movement has formed around him? George Floyd is just another in a long line of Black Americans who have been killed by police officers, white citizens, and often in unjust cases. So the Black Lives Matter started... Um, movement started with the murder of Trayvon Martin, who was a 17-year-old black man who was killed coming home from the corner store um, by a neighborhood watch member who felt threatened by uh, Trayvon Martin. And he was acquitted. And the Black Lives Matter kind of grew out of this injustice that black people are being killed um, and their murderers are not facing justice. So we had um, the example of George Floyd, where he was um, accused of using a counterfeit $20 note. And the police came and in the course of their arrest, um, kneeled on his neck for for almost eight minutes, um, subsequently killing him. And this is something that has sparked nationwide protests. It's not necessarily something that's new. We get these Black Lives Matter protests quite frequently when um, an issue like this comes to mind, but we've reached a critical moment now, almost a tipping point, where we've reached critical mass of, of people who realize that we can't allowed this anymore. Um, and it's not uh, just a a black and a, and a white uh, person thing. It really is enough people coming together to say that we need um, to investigate these issues. We need to find solutions and we need to address systemic racism in the states and in the policing system and in the criminal justice system. So that's, of course, a, a very uh, worthwhile cause. But uh, the kind of protests have been quite mixed. I suppose depending on which bubble you choose to be in on Twitter, you can either see, uh, you know, countless videos of people peacefully protesting or countless videos of people rioting angrily. And I think we've seen some of the 
quite well, I, in some ways, I think worrying scenes, particularly out of Seattle overnight, where um, Antifa protesters have set up an autonomous zone where police aren't allowed. Uh, we've seen r- rioting, including of in minority neighbourhoods. Sam, do we think these protests are an unbridled good? Well, I in the US, I see them as certainly um, more good than bad. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the US has significant problems with police brutality, and um, there are reasons for that that probably policy changes could fix. So one example is the doctrine of the legal doctrine of what's called qualified immunity, um, where it's not possible to bring a civil case against a police officer as opposed to a criminal case, um, unless there's a clearly established precedent in the law that the officer has broken the law. So to give you an example, um, this year there was a case brought against a police officer for pepper spraying somebody um, unprovoked. Um, and this was not accepted by a court because there hadn't been an established precedent of it being illegal. There hadn't been a previous case where it was illegal for a police officer to pepper spray somebody without um, uh, without provocation. Um, this being despite the fact that there there is precedent, for example, that a prison officer cannot punch a prisoner without provocation. Um, so it's a, it's it's it requires very narrow precedent, and um, it's pretty obvious to see that this is somewhat circular as well. Um, that that there's a very, very um, significant amount of uh, leeway given to police officers that do break the law and in fact break the law in unconstitutional ways because of this doctrine of qualified immunity. Now, the Supreme Court, um, I believe, is reviewing a few cases that would allow it to um, rule this doctrine to be unconstitutional. And if it did that, then that could make it much easier for people to sue police officers that they feel have um, broken the law or uh, that they feel could be suable. Um, and that could do, do something to make uh, police officers in America more accountable to people. Um, the other is that police unions mean that um, it's very difficult to actually get rid of bad police officers. And um, police unions are very, very strong. They mean that police officers are paid huge amounts of money. I mean, there was a case that I was just looking at yesterday, where um, a number of police officers in California accused of brutality, were all earning a quarter of a million dollars each per year, which is a very, very large amount of money, even by American standards. And um, this is this obviously makes it more expensive to run police forces, and it dilutes the amount of funding um, that could be spent on more policing, um, spending it instead on just very generous salaries for existing police officers. And these unions are also able to protect these officers from being disciplined or dismissed um, or even prosecuted, I, I imagine, if they are um, accused of wrongdoing. So these are things that could change. And um, I'm somewhat optimistic about um, some of the calls to, say, change the nature of police forces so that, for example, you could start again, you could um, set up a kind of a new police force where um, the, the, one of the rules of entry was that you couldn't unionize or that you um, would be required to join a more limited union that had less powers than the existing police unions. Um, and there are examples. So um, there's an interesting case in Camden, New Jersey, which um, still is, but was um, quite by quite some way one of the most dangerous places in America and um, quite significantly changed its approach to policing and seems to have had quite good results in terms of community engagement and ultimately in terms of violent crime. So there are causes for optimism and there are things that can be done. Um, and overall, I think, yes, in, the, in America, these protests uh, hopefully are on the side of good and, and are uh, more good than bad. But at the same time, uh, the rioting, the looting and the uh, breakdown in civil order that's taken place is still a cost and still something that I'm quite concerned about. 
yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Sam. There are a lot of really fundamental issues we're, we're learning more and more about within the American criminal justice system and the police forces. I do find that um, the idea of defunding the police quite fascinating. Uh, we've, we've now got this call, call and cry to as something as an achievement from the movement, which I think can both probably be a force for good and, and a force for bad. Um, in some senses, the police forces often do too much. They try to do a lot of social and community services that isn't traditionally really their role or something they're naturally going to be good at. Um, at the same time, though, often we, we do find that having more police leads to, to less violent crime. Um, so if, if defunding the police means uh, defunding the existing police forces and de-unionizing them so that they're more accountable and as well as making them more focused on, on violent crime and not having them try to do social service work, I think that's probably a great outcome. If the outcome is having no police, I think it'll end up being minority communities who will end up being worse off because they're the ones who are probably going to get hit harder by crime uh, in the longer run. Yeah, and I mean, it's, um, it's worth re- noting that the kind of slogan, defund the police, is kind of meaningless. Um, the people involved who are saying it, um, there are, I think, probably a few people who um, are in favour of literally not having a police force. Um, but I think m- most people who are saying it, and certainly I think most people who are associated with this movement, um, seem to, in fact, want to reform the police and to um, change the uh, change either the institution itself and create a new one, or to um, reform it in such a way that it isn't as hostile. Um, I, I, I think probably my main um, note of caution, um, without in any way diminishing the um, awful racism and the awful um, shootings and so on against um, African-Americans, is that American police seem to be uniformly brutal and seem to be extremely violent um, towards people of all races. Um, and even in the last few days, we've seen a 75-year-old man um, shoved over uh, by police officers who is white. Um, we've seen all sorts of uh, violent acts by police officers, perhaps taken out of context or perhaps not representative of the, the wider whole. I don't want to make generalizations. But the point being that um, police brutality seems to be a general problem, not just not simply a problem of racism. And so there is a slight danger that by focusing um, entirely on racism in this as as the, as the root cause of this issue there may be um people may miss that there are deeper factors as well perhaps to do with accountability perhaps to do with the type of people who are being recruited um or perhaps something else i think it does come down to lack of accountability and police officers just aren't held accountable for their actions and that is part of the unions like you say sam because when you look at it police unions are so powerful they have the ability to raise so much money and they are responsible for defending police officers when they are charged with, um, with crimes when they're when they're charged with uh, uh, cases of abuse. So the police unions defend their police, but what police unions also do is give massive campaign con- contributions to district attorneys and public defenders when they are um, running for election. So the police are not only defending their own people, but they're also electing the people that are going to be prosecuting the police. So we have this kind of cycle where there's a lack of accountability with um, with the police and, and, and they're just not held accountable for their actions so that, that there's no risk to them to disperse police, uh, to disperse protests with force. Yeah, and of course, though, although we've seen this um, perhaps quite important movement in the States, um, we're also seeing some similar movements in other parts of the world. Uh, in my, my home country in Australia, there have been protests 
um, all over capital cities and the same in the UK. Um, the BBC described the protests as largely peaceful, um, although there, there were some eruptions in violence. Uh, Boris Johnson has broadly backed the, the need for racial equality, um, and he said that the, the words, I can't breathe, have awakened the world in anger. Those were the words of George Floyd. Um, and a widespread and incredible, undeniable feeling of injustice. But he's also said, I will not support those who flout the rules on social justice. Um, and of course, even more recently, in, in recent days, uh, this has really become a, a debate over the most dramatic scenes that we saw in Bristol with uh, protesters pulling down a statue of Edward Colston, um, who was a slave trader involved in the Royal African Country um, Company, but also endowed schools, hospitals, um, and churches in Bristol. And now we've got the London Mesnick Khan uh, doing an inquiry into statues. We've already seen a slave owner statue removed in West Key of Robert Milgan. Um, the, there's also a lot of efforts going on to, to rename buildings, uh, to review statues. And, and even uh, we're recording this on, on Thursday, the, just this morning in Poole, um, they've been announcing intent to tear down the statue of Robert Baden-Powell on police advice. Um, he, of course, was the founder of the Scouts, but it was also a supporter of Hitler and made homophobic remarks. Um, the local residents are campaigning against the pulling down of the statue. Um, and Sky News uh, showed footage this morning of one gentleman saying, I will fight for him uh, and the, the statue. And, and also some residents making the point that uh, at what point does this end? At what point do we stop pulling down statues? Um, at what, who, who is an allowable historical figure? Um, I heard on a few nights ago on a, a podcast, uh, one of the Black Lives Matter um, protesters saying that Churchill statue needs to go. But you could probably make the same case about Gandhi, who made plenty of racist remarks. Marx is obviously uh, no great fan of racial diversity and, and you could say he's responsible for murdering millions of people if that's you're so way inclined. Um, uh, Sam, how, do, how should we look at these protests in the UK? Are they dealing with what is a serious racial uh, inequality issue? And what do we think of where the really leading to about this kind of cultural um, wiping out of, of previous historical wrongs? Um, well, I have to say, while I am very sympathetic with most of the protesters in the United States, um, I think that a lot of the um, complaints in the UK are um, misguided and driven by a kind of um, influence of, the, of American culture and American politics on the UK. Um, I think the police in the UK, for all their faults, are incredibly good at avoiding um, wrongful killings. Um, they have among the lowest rates of, of, of killings of, of any kind in the world um, behind countries like Sweden, um, the countries that we kind of generally think of as being extremely placid and so on. Um, the the last three of the last three people shot by the Metropolitan Police, um, two were the uh, London Bridge terror attackers, um, and these are these are. I mean, we're we're talking about very, very, very isolated incidents. Usually, where um, I think it's fairly difficult to argue that the police were wrong to shoot those people. Um, and the very, very few cases, the awful cases we have, where um, members of the public um, have been shot by police who should not have been. Um, there have been big public inquiries. There's been huge amounts of accountability. Um, I think it's really difficult to argue that we have anything remotely like the kinds of problems in the UK that um, people in, in the US are protesting about. Um, having said that, um, I don't mind people, I mean, people protesting is their right. People uh, can disagree with me. Um, where I become 
a lot more nervous and a lot more, um, I think, conservative is probably the word, um, is when we get public acts of violence or destruction of property um, and the authorities are acquiescent in that. So um, I don't care about the statue um, in Bristol. I, I probably personally would vote to remove it if there was a, if I was living nearby and there was a local poll. Um, I don't really mind statues being removed. Uh, I don't think statues have a kind of God-given right to exist forever. And I don't think it's a big deal if you get rid of them through kind of democratic um, legal means. But when you have a mob of people who um, pull down a statue or pull down or destroy property um, and are not stopped from doing so by the police, because basically I think the police are worried that this will turn into a full-blown riot if they do get, if they do step in, that's a big problem. And it becomes an even bigger problem when um, the mob gets its way. So they're allowed to pull down the statue. The statue isn't put back up. And then everywhere else in the country, local authorities say, well, we don't want to have similar things like this of our own. And if we, and so we're going to pull down these statues as well. Um, so this has nothing to do with the actual content of the statue, but it's the um, fact of a mob getting its way, and then and not only getting its way in this specific case, but getting its way across the entire country because of the threat of mob violence. That to me is a really big problem, and um, I have to say I'm quite pessimistic and nervous about what's happening. The um, you know the slippery slope point, um, which clearly isn't a fallacy in this case anyway. Um, clearly, I mean we've gone from a um, slave trader that very few people outside of Bristol have heard of to um, the founder of the Scouts. Um, I, I, you know, I, I find this, um, you know, there's a, a hall in Liverpool University that's been renamed from Gladstone to something else because Gladstone's maiden speech was um, basically calling for bigger reparations for slave owners because his father was a slave owner. Um, you know, there's this incredible rapid move from um, one instance of mob violence to um basically them getting their way across the whole country. And um, as somebody who thinks that civil order is really important and that mobs are really dangerous, I'm nervous and quite angry at what's going on. Yeah, I think classically that the first, and it was Weber who said that the role of government uh, in itself is to ensure the monopoly on violence and that you don't really actually have a, a functioning state or a functioning society um, if you if you have the, the mobs taking over and, and defining policy. Um, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with, actually quite a bit uncomfortable, I should say, with trying to banish certain historical figures or rename buildings or whatever else. And there's obviously, there's obviously um, a spectrum here in some ways. Like no one would support a, a statue big up of Hitler and, you know, after World War II that to remove a lot of iconography uh, from the, 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 the Reich from, from Germany. And that's obviously completely justified as you're, you're moving on. Um, I think though it is important to probably separate uh, the reasons why these these statues were put up in the first place. In the, in, the, in the American case, a lot of the Confederate statues were put up in active celebration of the Confederacy and therefore of, of what the Confederacy stood for in the, in the Civil War and, and therefore of slavery. And therefore kind of see a, there's probably not a strong case for keeping them up and it would be better to remove them and move them to um, uh, museums or whatever else. Uh, for a lot of other people, though, the reason why the statues there aren't necessarily because of the worst things they did and, and what we historically might disagree with them about fundamentally but from to, to celebrate the, the good that they contributed and we become quite a massiveist culture if all we can do is look at our history and say every every figure has done some evil every figure has done some wrong there's no one there's, there's you know we should be guilty of our sins forever and ever and ever um it just worries me as a, as a cultural phenomenon that we end up losing any perspective on things can get better that we that the the people were wrong in history and that culturally morally we do evolve and progress 
and we lose any sense of that if we just start tearing down all these historical figures and and saying that that nothing is any good and and then we start tearing down the institutions that some of them were actually quite key in building um and and we lose any any sense of grounding for our our society um morgan where where do you find yourself at the moment on these issues um, I think you pointed out two things. One was the first, the the, the Confederate statues in the States. There's been uh, a movement for a while to have those removed. And I think you are right. They were put up with the explicit purpose of intimidating um, African-Americans in the South to say, you know, this is our legacy and we're not going to forget it. Um, and, and those probably do have a much better case for being torn down. You're right. I also agree with Sam that we should go about it as democratically as possible and and not condone a group of people making a decision on behalf of of uh, a movement and 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 taking that into their own hands. I think the fact that that the Black Lives Matter protests has descended into a discussion of statues and historical figures of racism in the UK, as opposed to discussion of police brutality in the States, goes exactly back to Sam's point about how the police just don't have the same problems here as they do in the in the US. So we're, we're seeing this kind of manifestation of the two joint purposes of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is to, to fight racism and to fight police brutality. So in the US, we're getting much more of the police brutality side. And in the UK, we're experiencing much more of let's address systemic racism, let's address our history. But I do think we've gotten to a point where, like you both say, no figure is immune to some sort of wrong by our modern standards. That doesn't make it wrong to have a statue to them, which is put up in a certain context. The Colson statue, while he was a horrible person who engaged in slave trade, he basically built the city of Bristol off the back of that. And that's not to say that that makes him immune from criticism, but to have a statue of him in Bristol juxtaposed with the bridge which the statue was thrown off, which is called Perro's Bridge, which was named after a slave in Bristol. So with those two monuments to two very different people living very different lives, you see the entire history of a city. So we're we're kind of getting to a point where I don't want to say erasing history because you can still learn about these things without statues. I agree with Sam again. You don't need statues aren't some sort of necessary function of of human society but i think we do need to be very careful about why we're asking for statues to be removed is because we're judging historical figures by modern standards or because they actually were destructive people who have left a terrible legacy in their wake yeah and I think, of course, though, what we're not discussing here while this is all going on is the fact that we are in still in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and there does seem to be, and there's another one that worries me about the legitimacy of the public health side of this, is that it's basically premised on the idea of a kind of some kind of consistency and moral responsibility to limit your social contact. Um, but we, we saw last week over 1,200 um, American epidemiologists, academics, and other public health officials released a statement saying, in fact, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests are so important um, that we, we think they're more important than social distancing when it comes to COVID. And I think as an empirical statement, that's absolutely absurd since there's something like 20,000 um, African-Americans who've died directly as a result of COVID, um, which is which is far, far more than any kind of police brutality, as much as there is a need to deal with that police brutality. It's, it seems just on a kind of a utilitarian ground, if nothing else, that there is still a moral good in, in social distancing. 
I was never comfortable in the first place with the idea of banning political protests because I, I, I think even in the most extreme circumstances, we should have a right to go out on the street and, and campaign against an authoritarian government, especially when they are being authoritarian. But do you think we still, though, perhaps have a, a moral responsibility to limit our, our social contact, even if this is a, a, a righteous cause, Sam? Um, well, I do, and I and I think that this also goes to the problem with um, and, and and a quite fundamental split in um, ways of looking at the world. Um, on the one hand, you have people who think that um, basically rules are kind of ad hoc, and rules are things that we um, adjust and we uh, we obey. Uh, and enforce when it's good to do so, and we don't obey and enforce when it's not good to do so. Um, and on the other hand, you have a fairly small group of people, I think, although many people claim to be in this group, that say that kind of rules need to be enforced, whether or not it's good in that particular case to enforce them. So when the epidemiologists say um, that it's it's not worth having these rules, that actually um, social distancing rules, in fact, should not bother, bother to be enforced during these protests, because these protests are good, um, it's very difficult for them to uh, then say, well, Donald Trump shouldn't be holding rallies, which he's now planning to do, um, because the only real justification they have to oppose one and not the other is that they like one and they approve of one and they disapprove of the other. Now, I, I happen to agree. I approve of the, the protests, and uh, or at least the aims of the protests, and not approve of Donald Trump and Donald Trump's rallies. But it's very difficult for me to argue that there's some kind of rule that um, should be, that, should, that, that sort of everybody's abiding by. Really, we're saying the rules don't apply to the good groups, and they do apply to the bad groups, um, which is, I think, very, very difficult to maintain and gets you then into, and you know, I, I usually don't like the kind of equivalence approach to argument where you say, oh, well, if a bad person did that, wouldn't you think that was bad? But um, if we're saying that, for example, it's all right for a mob of people to pull down a statue they don't like, um, there are lots of good statues that I don't want to be pulled down. And there are lots of um, small minority angry mobs that might want to take down statues. You know, you might have men's rights activists taking down the statue of Millicent Fossa in, Par in Parliament Square because they don't agree with uh, women's suffrage. You know, there are all sorts of um, weird, weird groups. And that's why we have democracy. You know, I, and, I'm, and I'm extremely critical of democracy in many respects. But what it is good at is adjudicating disputes between different groups of people and giving us a kind of neutral way of deciding who gets to have their way when there's a kind of contested um, disagreement as there is in this public space. Um, to me, when it comes to social distancing and when it comes to um, the the kind of epidemiological response, I think the big problem, you know, look, I, I highly doubt that um, it would have made a huge difference if epidemiologists had all said, you know, it's it's very bad for your health. It's a very bad idea to go on these protests. Um, but having having jumped on that bandwagon and said it's good for you to go on these protests, I think they've sacrificed any kinds of credibility they had um, in the eyes of most people. And any claims they now have to tell people, well, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. I think m many people will view that um, through a lens of thinking, well, these guys are just these are just plain politics. You know, these guys are just just as politicized as any politician. Why should I listen to this group? just because they kind of say they're experts, um, when they've clearly said that they're willing to suspend their judgment and their expertise when um, they like the politics of, of the activity concerned. So I think it's real. it really goes to the heart of this need for kind of a neutral state and a neutral body of expertise that gives people information and lets them make their own mind up for themselves. Um, and, I'm, and I'm depressed that um, we've, we've kind of lost that now, at least in the US. There, there have been a few exceptions. But um, in general, I think it's very bad news. And I mean, who knows? I'm not an epidemiologist, um, so I have no idea what will happen next with COVID. But um, it cannot be good news 
that um, the public is losing trust in the people who should be able to tell them what is safe and isn't safe. Now, of course, the COVID crisis is ongoing and there's both the epidemiological element, but there's the huge economic consequences of uh, the, the shutdowns, the lockdowns, the increasing social distance. Uh, the OECD has come out this week and said that they expect the UK to be the hardest hit of major economies. And they're expecting a, a slump this year of 11.5% in GDP, which is obviously huge. And that's particularly because the UK's dependence on trade, tourism and the hospitality sector. Um, on the other side of the, the ledger, of course, though, in the States this this week, we saw some uh, extraordinary economic data, very much unexpected, that rather than the unemployment rate increasing to around 20%, which is what a lot of economists were predicting, was actually a decline in the unemployment rate, and a lot of people had been, uh, I think it was a couple million people, had been rehired. Um, where, where are we at in terms of what we think the potential for recovery from this crisis are? What, what's the challenge, Morgan? Um, I think that our biggest issue here in the UK is going to be the withdrawal of all the support that's been given. Um, I think any sort of sudden withdrawal of the uh, furlough scheme or anything like that, the support for people who are not able to work because of the social distancing rules, um, any sort of sudden withdrawal of that is probably going to cause a a large spike in unemployment that I think the furlough scheme is probably hiding. Um, We need to make sure that the government kind of as they're withdrawing the the social restrictions, restrictions on our, our liberties and freedoms to shop and trade and 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 meet each other, they're also spending as much time uh, determining the plan for withdrawing all of the economic support that they put forth. Um, they 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 won't be able to just turn it on and off. They'll need to uh, withdraw it probably sector by sector industry by industry, to make sure that the uh, industries that need the support in the short term can get it. But we also are going to have to remember that we're going to eventually move to a new normal. And once that happens, we'll need to make sure that the government um, gets out of the way and allows companies to adjust um, because there will be a lot of adjustment periods and consumer habits will have changed. We might not see the same desire for travel for a long time. We might not see the same desire for restaurants or um, bars. Uh, and if that does happen, then these these industries will need to learn how to adapt and figure out what they can uh, do to adjust the new normal. And if they're not able to, we need to make sure that we allow those companies to to fail. Um, this is this is down the line. This is not immediate short term. This is medium to long term. Because if we continue to hold up companies that uh, aren't able to adapt to our new normal once the government support has been withdrawn, then we're going to end up in a a, a, a situation where we have people just working in unproductive sectors, producing something that no one wants, uh, providing a service that no one's able to use, um, and we won't be able to release those people and capital and and uh, locations for for things that people actually do want and do need, and and that's just going to be part of the the long term adjustment period. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, ultimately, our capacity to regrow our economy. In, in the medium to long run will be defined by our ability to be dynamic and responsive and the capacity of people to move between different employment and different tasks um, as the economy is constantly shifting. Uh, we, we should remember that this isn't something unique and different. Every year, millions of people lose their job and, and gain jobs, businesses fail, businesses succeed. Um, that's the kind of creative destruction process of capitalism that, that Joseph Schumpeter talked about. We're now getting a lot more destruction and then it's a question of can you get the creativity? And we know you tend to get more creativity when you have 
uh, fewer barriers to hiring people, fewer taxes discouraging investment. Um, Sam, what what can we do to ensure that the recovery is is as swift as possible? Um, and are you? I know in the past you've you've said you're relatively optimistic. Are you still that kind of optimistic about the kind of V-shaped recovery? Or are we looking for a U or an L? Well, I'm pretty I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, the American job numbers might be um, a blip. Um, you know, I might we might be sitting here in a month um, looking at even worse numbers. But um, I'm fairly optimistic. I think that um, we have to be clear that there are really two stages that we're thinking of. Um, One is the kind of imminent stage where lockdown basically ends and we're trying to kind of return somewhat to normal as much as possible um, while probably having kind of local lockdowns, probably um, having quite a lot of distancing that make a lot of bars and restaurants still unviable, but maybe more offices and other work um, viable. That period, I think, could be really difficult. And um, my intuition is to err on the side of um, spending too much money, propping too many businesses up, um, not doing, not trying to avoid um, keeping resources tied up in things. So, for example, um, workers. I think it's very good that workers who are furloughed can take other jobs while they're furloughed. Um, I think it's important to allow people to kind of switch around like that. But in this in this kind of meantime period, I think it's much much more important to just try to get through it um, and socialize the costs and the losses. Um, instead of having them imposed specifically on restaurants and bars in particular. Um, but once we've come out of that point, then we go back to kind of normal economics. You know, once we, let's say we have a vaccine by this time next year or by the end of this year, um, as as um, Dr. Fauci in the US predicts, um, in that case, we're kind of, we, we obviously want as rapid a recovery as possible. But um, most of the things that we would do to do that are going to be the same economic um, kind of prescriptions that we recommend in normal times. Um, you know, planning liberalization isn't just good because it means cheaper houses. It means that there's a huge pent up demand for new resources to be created and new new assets to be created that could create huge employment and so on. And, you know, those, that, that's the sort of thing that at the margin, if we made it easier to build more houses, um, we would probably just create lots of jobs. And um, it doesn't really matter that much if they take workers away from different sectors, um, because that's real economic value being created. Um, the other, I mean, the other way of thinking about it is, um, it, is this a supply side recession or is it a demand side recession? Um, I think it's clearly been a supply side recession up until um, now, and it probably will re- continue to be a supply side recession for um, the duration of the period we don't have a vaccine, by which I mean, the problem isn't that there's not enough money going around in the economy. The problem is that restaurants that used to be able to have 30 people can now have you know 10 people in them or six people in them. That's a supply side problem. And there's not really anything we can do to fix that right now. Um, when we come out of that and when we sort of fix the supply side by ending um, or not needing to have these sort of restrictions anymore, it may, there may be demand side problems. Um, and that's a, that's a job for monetary policy usually. Um, there, so there may be kind of things like that that we need to do. But all of these are kind of normal, I think. Once we're out of the COVID era and once we, once we have a vaccine or once we have workable ways of controlling the spread as they do in some Eastern Asian countries, um, we're back to, back to normal economic policy. And um, then that's when things like planning liberalization really become, in some ways, could be things like magic bullets that um, create huge, huge amounts of extra economic activity just because they've always been there. Um, And now perhaps there's a kind of there's a political will to do them um, as well as an economic desire. Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential 
in order to to restart the economy after COVID um, to to be as as loose and free as possible with encouraging industry. Uh, There might have been a big role for government during the crisis and and people from across the political um, spectrum accepted that. When the crisis is over, though, if the government's going to have enough revenue to be able to funnel the services that everyone now wants, and you've got huge demands on um, healthcare and social care and in the long and the short term, uh, we need as big a private sector uh, as possible. Um, if you just think about, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to planning. Uh, the Centre for Policy Studies had a report out this week making the point that although there seems to have been an increase in immediate construction work when it comes to finishing off existing projects, we're not seeing new projects start. So what they, they're predicting is potentially a W when it comes to that particular industry where we see a down and then an initial increase and then a, a decrease in activity. So we really then need that planning reform in order to enable that construction. There's also It also comes back to that dynamism point as well, which is that uh, one of the ideas we put out there in a recent ASI report was just making it even easier to do permitted development of converting um, commercial real estate into residential because there's going to be uh, a lot more movement in terms of work from home. You can have a lot less need for commercial real estate, potentially can have a lot less uh, retail in physical spaces and, and a lot less food. Um, if we can convert a lot of those uh, commercial spaces into housing, you create an immediate boost in terms of uh, something for the tradies to do, something uh, physically to construct, but also you create new housing uh, in, in central places. So you, you don't leave derelict spaces, um, which often leads to an increase in crime anyway, but or you, you create that kind of new economic opportunity. The other thing that I should have mentioned is is immigration. Um, you know, I think that uh, without getting into the detail of Brexit too much, um, it's going to be a pretty bad double punch for businesses, particularly kind of high growth startups that have been very difficult to support because a lot of them haven't been revenue making. Um, and one way of mitigating the costs of Brexit for them would be to kind of massively expand um, tier two visas uh, for kind of semi for skilled and semi skilled workers, and to, for example, just make it much much easier. And to say for for let's say for a two or three year period, any worker earning above this certain salary threshold and a fairly low salary threshold, I would suggest, um, perhaps with a university degree, can come to the UK and get a tier two visa for X amount of years. Just something very simple, very clear that says, you know, I I mean. I don't. I wish the government didn't have migration targets, and I wish the government was pro- positive about migration in general. But um, recognizing that this is an emergency, where putting needs of startups and putting the needs of innovative businesses ahead of the kind of daily mail contingent um, is probably a sensible a sensible choice. Morgan, what's number one on your wish list if you were to, to speak to Rishi or, or Boris? Uh, what what would you ask for? Um, are you really passionate about Sunday trading? Uh, like me, I think it's just like a little bit of economic boost to make my life that little bit easier when I want to shop at 7pm on a Sunday night. Um, perhaps not the huge economic growth from that alone. Well, what do you think is most important, Morgan? Um, I think we could really look at things like occupational licensing and mutual recognition of qualifications. I think this is something that we don't realize necessarily the burden that it places on the economy. So occupational licensing is when you, if you operate in a certain uh job, you need a license or certificate to to do that job. It often requires special training, um, it's fees, years, um, and this could be anything from architects to manicurists. You know, so many occupations have licenses. And what it does is makes it harder to um, to join the field. It, it, it erects huge barriers to entry to those people trying to join the field, makes occupation, uh, makes these services more expensive. 
um, disproportionately affects people from low-income households, preventing them from getting into certain high-paying industries. But what it also does, if they if the licenses are linked to specific locations in the U.S., it's state by state often. In the U.K., it can be the different countries or it can even be councils. It prevents people from moving to productive areas because they are they would have to retrain or they'd have to repair, they'd have to requalify. So one thing that we could do is 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 allow for mutual recognition for qualifications, which means if you have a license in England, you could be you could operate in Scotland. Or if you have a license in the US, say you're a doctor in the US and you want to come to the UK to be a doctor, you should be allowed to do so. And this would allow, like Sam says, we could get the we could get immigrants from these sectors that really need the support right now, and you wouldn't have these massive uh, costs for retraining or requalifying, and you would really allow people to to move to more productive sectors, to move to more productive industries, um, and you'd see a, a huge decrease in inefficiencies if you were to remove these occupational licenses um, and allow people from different countries of comparable um, training to to live in the UK uh, and and pursue these occupations. Yeah, and there was that amazing moment when just after Boris got out of hospital, he spoke about uh, the two nurses. Um, uh, was it Louis from Portugal or, or Jenny from New Zealand? And of course, Louis, when he came to the UK, if he was trained in Portugal, he would have immediately been recognised as a qualification because he's from the EU. But Jenny from New Zealand would have actually had to have retrained and requalified as a nurse, even though uh, there's probably more similarities between nursing in New Zealand and the UK than there is between UK and Portugal. So it's just a total kind of inconsistency of the, the way we treat people when it comes to qualifications. Um, I know of, personally of cases of uh, an Australian nurse who's been in the UK for a year. Um, she'd love to be out of work as a nurse, but because it's you know, she's only here for a small period of time, it's not worth going through the effort and the money and the cost of retraining. So she ends up doing something a bit lower skilled. So therefore not contributing uh, as, as much as she might be able to just because of the, the qualification system unnecessarily providing that burden. I mean, that's something the UK could do potentially as part of a, a trade agreement with Australia or New Zealand, but even could do unilaterally, um, choose to recognise these qualifications. Another topic that hasn't gotten quite as much attention this week, but could be quite a significant move, is this report from the Times that the government is looking to bring back laws to tackle foreign investment. Uh, Theresa May, as part of her premiership, said that this would be one of her major reforms to try to better control who can invest in the UK by giving much greater powers to the minister to block investment. And we don't know have the specific details of, of what the kind of reforms the government's planning at this particular point. Um, it does appear that the focus is very much on China and the, the risk that as the UK is going through a recession, there'll be a lot of bargain basement, but potentially strategically important companies that ch- the Chinese companies that are linked with the, the Chinese government could come in and purchase. Uh, Sam, you wrote a few years ago an article quite concerned about these kind of laws when Theresa May was bringing them in um, and the potential to to block foreign investment and, and really to be kind of quite a protectionist measure. Um, how, how do you see that kind of foreign investment question these days? How do, do you think there is a role for laws blocking foreign investment or should it be a free-for-all? Um, generally, I think it should be a free-for-all. Um, I think there is probably a legitimate case for um, some national review, national security-based review of certain acquisitions or certain investments, which is what we have at the moment. 
But it's worth noting that even with the fairly narrow um, scope for those kinds of reviews that we have at the moment, the government has in recent years used it repeatedly as a protectionist um, or as basically a kind of dirigist instrument. So um, Melrose's takeover of GKN, Melrose is not a security concern. Melrose is just a private equity company. And taking over GKN, which is a kind of um, supplier to to the armed forces, was scrutinized on national security grounds. Um, now, they, eventually, they didn't go ahead with a formal review, but only after Melrose made commitments um, that it wouldn't threaten the company's pension fund, that it that it would protect certain jobs in certain places and things like that, things that have nothing to do with national security. And um, the then business secretary at the time later admitted that it really did have nothing to do with national security. They were just using this test as a pretext for extracting these commitments from Melrose. Um, now, my fear is that... Um, a, a broader law that comes in and the, the Theresa May government's proposals that kind of either died in consultation or are still in technically technically in consultation um, but have been sort of shelved for a long time. Those proposals were to make any transaction um, over a fairly low amount um, scrutinizable on this basis, not just a transaction involving a foreign buyer um, or let alone a foreign buyer from China or countries that, countries that are kind of national security risks. Um, and it would have basically brought in a parallel merger control regime that would allow a government department, probably the business department or possibly the MOD, to review any transaction it wanted, more or less, in the UK, um, irrespective of the actual merits on national security grounds. It would have been a complete pathway to lobbying. It would have been a complete pathway to um, unions trying to prevent takeovers that they thought would um, end, in, end in job losses. And those things are really valuable. You know, it's very, very valuable to have struggling companies taken over and restructured, and it can really turn companies around. Um, it's good for British jobs. So it's I'm good really, for, for the British economy. Well, it's 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 it's. I mean, of course, you're joking. It's it's terrible because even though in the short term it might prevent job losses, in the long term it can mean the company becoming inefficient, the company being unable to compete um, internationally, and ultimately the company going bankrupt or mm. um, British companies as a whole becoming less competitive and less innovative. That those are really bad things. The second, the second question is sort of let's imagine if we could have a really narrow and a really focused um, regime um, that did focus on um, sensitive, uh, sensitive technologies and so on. I mean, that's quite similar to what we've got already. Um, and so if the government is talking about, you know, um, technologies that are of um, special national security relevance or are particularly concerning if a Chinese buyer, for example, takes them over, then I think, I mean, we have we have a structure like that already. It might need marginal tweaks. There have been marginal tweaks made. But I think that the government is proposing, either whether, whether it understands this or not, um, a, a very, very significant broadening of um, a, effectively a protectionist control on investment um, that I think will have really serious economic costs and um, isn't needed. So Australia's had this kind of debate for quite a, quite a long time. Uh, there's been a foreign investment review board, which I think in some ways might be what the UK is looking at. The weird feature though of the foreign investment review board is it, it, it kind of automatically triggers of an investment of a certain size when I, I think it would make sense to have the, a kind of review process that that's as um, transparent as possible. Sometimes the security elements can't be completely disclosed, but as transparent as possible, but would be very narrow in scope. So only really be able to look at issues that have a very clear strategic um, question and and very much, I think, quite frankly, needs to be discriminatory. I don't care about, you know, an American investing in Australia or a, a, an Australian company investing in the UK or, or whatever amongst friendly um, democratic liberal countries. But I, I think we at the same time do have to be relatively hesitant 
about uh, Chinese investment in certain strategic um, assets. Now, in some ways, you could argue it's a good thing because the more our economies are interconnected, the more friendly we'll be. But if if there is something that is being used as a way to steal intellectual property from um, certain companies that is some way integrated in, into the um, military and defense establishment, there is probably justification. Uh, there's also a case, I think, of a, a, a China trying to buy, uh, so a Chinese company trying to buy a, a hotel um, and resort kind of facility in Scotland in the north, just where uh, nuclear submarines go through that kind of um, geographic area. And therefore, kind of owning that particular piece of land might be somewhere that they could uh, potentially, if a company was linked to the Chinese government, could use that to, for spying purposes. So there's probably certain cases where I, I think it is justified. But I think, Sam, you're right. It's it's quite narrow. Um, well, I mean, all of this has to be all of this has to be um, seen in the context of um, the U.S. changes. So the American, so obviously America has um, what's called CFIUS, um, which is a, a body like the one you've described for Australia that reviews foreign investments in the U.S. Um, and it's broader than the UK um, situation, but it's not that broad. Um, and now recently, the uh, Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act was passed, which massively expanded the scope of CFIUS um, and um, created the sort of structure that you're talking about, where certain countries, and they named Australia, Canada, and the UK, if I remember rightly, as three potentially eligible countries, could get past a lot of these requirements if they instituted a similar setup in their own countries. Now, I think that's quite dangerous because um, you may have a kind of, it, it may kind of accidentally lead you to a sort of two block system where you have co- countries that are sort of inside this block and countries that are outside this block. And um, the risk of that, I think, um, and, I, and I agree with you that we need to be realistic about which countries are threats to us, which countries aren't. But I think that the US approach of sort of naming countries and saying you need to have the same system as us um, really risks sort of splitting the global economy in two. And, um, you know, it's it's potentially not a good idea if um, we allow, let's say, a quantum computing startup that has very specific national security applications to be bought by a Chinese company. Um, I'm much more relaxed about, um, you know, a voice recognition startup being bought by a Chinese company or, um, you know, a machine or some kind of uh, some other kind of machine learning based technology being bought by a Chinese company, because those are they're just companies, they make things, they sell things here, um, we trade with them. It's that's just part of part of capitalism. So um, my my worry is that the, the the way the world is going, we can't have the um, narrow. But basically, our choice is the current system with a few tweaks, or a very very extensive system that effectively acts as a really big barrier to investment and um, and kind of begins to split the global economy in two. And I think that second world is really the only option other than the current system that we've got. And that makes me very concerned about even benign or even well-meaning attempts to broaden these kinds of rules in any major way. Morgan? I think that the the whole um, national security uh, blunt instrument is really being used in the States as, as you mentioned, a protectionist measure. It is basically the U.S. trade policy saying we... Uh, we know best, so we want to make sure that the rest of the the world is following our standards. And if they're not, we're going to bring things back home because of national security interests. If we can't count on uh, China to, to to be stable and to uh, offer that that security for our assets, we'll bring them we'll bring them home. I don't think it's necessarily uh, a a good thing for governments to create that that uncertainty with all these different international trade measures that, that then forces companies to, to make the decision to to move back domestically. 
um, I think that companies are always very able to to weigh weigh the pros and cons of, of setting up shop wherever. Um, and I, I don't think we necessarily need to use this blunt instrument to kind of encourage um, protectionist policies. Um, a more specific issue, though, would be the the ongoing debate about Huawei. Um, the company took out this week full-page advertisements in British newspapers uh, trying to defend itself against recent criticism about its role in the 5G network. I've seen various of my political newsletters, um, banner ads are all Huawei at the moment. Uh, we also got this interesting news that HSBC, obviously a British bank that but quite heavily invested in, in Hong Kong and, and China and uh, the, the Asia-Pacific region, um, is reportedly being threatened about their business operations if the UK uh, chooses to drop Huawei from the phone network. Meanwhile, Mike, Mike Pompeo, the uh, US Secretary of State, has said that he wants to help the UK build a 5G network and a, a nuclear power stations. I don't know uh, what capacity America has to do that. Um, and the National Cybersecurity Center is reviewing the decision to allow Huawei into the telecommunications network. Um, Sam, do you think that that's a case that pushes uh, the boundaries that we, in fact, don't want uh, a, a Chinese telecommunications company in the in parts of the UK's next generation telecommunications network, or should we be relatively open to that as a, as free traders? Um, I have to say that I find the Huawei debate very frustrating because it's so poorly quantified. Um, I have never seen um, a good estimate of how much more expensive it would be to go it alone or to um, use, say, Ericsson or um, another company's um, setup. And I think that's really important because if the cost per consumer, say, is a few pounds, then maybe we decide that it's better better safe than sorry. If the cost per consumer is thousands of pounds, then maybe we say, well, let's do let's do a kind of security mitigations that might make Huawei um, a kind of a goer. Um, I've I've always been struck by the fact that the official security agencies all seem to be fairly relaxed about Huawei, um, and the most concerned people about Huawei seem to be people who have deep geopolitical concerns about China, not necessarily people who have specific expertise into this area. Now, I don't have that specific expertise. Um, I'm not really equipped to make a decision or make a judgment, um, but I'm concerned because I think there is a contingent of people who pretty much want a Cold War with China. I, I'm extremely concerned about China's actions in Hong Kong. Um, I've proposed, uh, you know, building Hong Kong 2.0, and I think it's great that the Adam Smith Institute is doing work to um, make sure that people in Hong Kong with BNO citizenship can come and live in the UK. I think it's incredibly valuable work. Um, but I'm really concerned by people who kind of want to start the Cold War again. And um, there are these people in the US, there are people in the UK, there are un undoubtedly, I'm sure, people in China who want this. And I think that um, cooler heads hopefully will prevail, who um, are able to say, yes, Chinese, the Chinese government is malevolent. Um, we've known it's malevolent for a long time. I don't think we've learned anything new about the Chinese government during the COVID affair. We've known it's a secretive, uh, malignant organization for a very long time. Um, and this is something that we should be considering whether we take them on by trying to cut them out or we take them on by trying to beat them at their own game and trying to increase our economic integration with other countries in the region by, for example, promoting TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and things like that. To me, uh, there's a positive vision of um, kind of positive rivalry with China, a sort of great game, if you like, rather than a kind of um, zero sum cut each other off, try to punish each other, try to ev eventually isolate each other so much that we are back into a Cold War situation. And so I, I, I and my, this is my long-winded way of answering, I don't know about Huawei. Um, I'm slightly suspicious of the people who say that Huawei is disastrous because I think they have um, 
an agenda that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with. But at the same time, I'd really like to see some actual numbers on the cost of going with um, an alternative to Huawei before I think we can make that kind of decision. Yeah, and I suspect a lot of the cost is is a time delay cost uh, rather than necessarily a, a financial cost because just Huawei seems to be, according to some of the experts, further along in their technology. What kind of worries me, though, is the extent to which um, key infrastructure is integrated with systems provided by Chinese companies is the political um, levers that, that China can then pull, and they seem to be very willing to pull. So if, if let's say, we allow Huawei into network, in five years' time, do we find that if we want to criticise their actions in Hong Kong, that they threaten not to provide us parts uh, or not to provide us um, support for that, the, the parts of infrastructure that they've, they've put in our network? Or I think Australia's finance issue at the moment, where Australia went out quite hard in calling for a review of China's actions when it came to COVID-19 and, and the secrecy, and is now facing some very specific consequences when it comes to 80% tariffs on barley, and um, as, as well as blocking imports from certain arbiters. And, and there's even been some reports um, in Chinese media recently claiming Australia is a racist country and students shouldn't go, Chinese students shouldn't go to Australia, which is a bit rich coming from a, a country that, that locks up Muslims in, in concentration camps and doesn't let black people into restaurants or hotels uh, in certain regions in recent months. But the I think the challenge with the integration is is thinking kind of medium to long term about if that limits our political capacity to stand up for liberal values globally, if we find ourselves excessively dependent um, in on the particular uh, Chinese systems for essential goods. So I think in some ways it's about ensuring kind of a, a diversity of strategic um, supply chains so that we're not, so a particular country who we're not no, is willing to do things like block trade and access, um, let's say, to masks, that we can get masks from somewhere else in future. So we're not in this position where our, our politics has, has to be dampened in order to um, keep China happy for trade reasons. I think, I think that's a good point. And, um, it, and if you're right that it's a question of timing, then, I mean, that's, that's really the thing I'd like to understand. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a good enough appreciation. And I feel like very few people in this debate have made clear that, are we talking about a six-month delay? Are we talking about a, a, a two-year delay? Are we talking about a 10-year delay? And all of those things, I think, um, have to... I mean, our judgment cannot be made unless we have a good understanding about the the kind of trade-offs that are involved. Um, and I think you're probably right. If uh, if it's a six-month delay, I think we can probably live with that. That seems like a fairly low cost. If it's a 10-year delay, then that seems like quite a high cost. And if it's somewhere in between, then, um, I mean, it, it, it just requires a quantification of the risks and the trade-offs and um, that that may be something that's happening behind the scenes um, but it certainly doesn't seem to be happening in the public debate um, so it's, it's it's something that I kind of feel like no, no side in the debate that I've seen has really um, t- told me what the trade-offs are so I feel quite unequipped to um, make a judgment myself. In the final section of this podcast, we're going to be looking at some cultural picks, looking at what we've been reading, what we've been watching on television or any movies we've been recently interested in. Uh, Morgan, I hear you've been going back to the classics. Yeah, I've been using this time in quarantine to read all of the books I didn't read in high school English. So I I just finished Tale of Two Cities, um, which I thought was incredible. I mean, it is a classic. It's, it's no surprise that it is a good book. Um, it's, it's particularly interesting to see the, the course that over the course of the book, how you see that the plot unfold and, and the connection between the two cities, um, which are of course, London and Paris, um, 
I also think it's it's kind of interesting looking at it uh, in 2020, seeing the kind of culture wars we're experiencing now uh, and making kind of a glib comparison between the French Revolution, which was maybe one of the original culture wars, uh, had noble intentions, but of course descended into uh, quite a barbaric uh, revolution. Um, you can't deny that that the cause of the the French peasantry was was a noble one at the time, but the way that they um, descended into uh, barbaric executions of anyone and everyone. I mean, um, our our main character is is threatened with execution because of the crimes of his father. So. There's definitely a hierarchy of revolutions, of course, with the the American Revolution at, at the top as a uh, the most liberal and uh, positive in terms of relatively peaceful uh, revolution, um, particularly after the the conflict with the British. Um, the French started out good, went went pretty terrible. You could you could argue the seeds of the revolution were, were sowed early on in in terms of the terror, but it's it certainly um, some amazing liberal principles outlined in the the. Um, Declaration on the, the Rights of Man. Um, Sam, have you got a, a revolutionary uh, take on uh, on the terror? Are we are we seeing another terror today? Well, um, actually, it's it's um, convenient. We didn't plan this beforehand, but the book I've been reading has been um, Ed West's new book, "Small Men on the Wrong Side of History," which is Ed's um, kind of very humorous um, reflection on conservatism and kind of what it means to be a conservative. And I read this, um, I do not really consider myself to be a conservative, but um, Ed uh, very, very uh, humorously and kind of skillfully, I think, gives the gives an account of modern conservatism and does it with a um, sort of self sense of his own ridiculousness. Um, I don't mean to say that he is ridiculous, but he is constantly uh, making fun of himself. He's constantly aware of the kind of the inherent contradictions of his of his views, as as all views, of course, have, um, and. I think does an amazing job of kind of describing um, and arguing for the kind of worldview of deep pessimism. Um, everything is always getting worse. Everything is always, um, you know, civilization is constantly teetering on the brink, um, but does it in a very, very light way and in a very, very um, interesting and insightful way, I think. So it's um, something that I really can't recommend enough. Um, the uh, and, and I think has been uh, unfortunately, was released at the beginning of lockdown, so um, it didn't get as much attention as it deserved. But I think um, the kind of upside of having a kind of people's republic declared in Seattle at the moment, um, and having you know Gladstone's name being taken off uh, university buildings in, in the UK, the upside is that I think people will be looking for people uh, books like Ed's to help them sort of process what's going on and help them process this feeling like I have actually, of never having been a conservative, but now feeling like a conservative as the world has moved on around me. Well, it's, being conservative is, of course, always what you're trying to conserve. Uh, so I think it's probably, um, it's, a, it's a relativist term. And I, I would never consider myself a conservative in Saudi Arabia, uh, where perhaps, you know, women driving is a revolutionary step. But I, I kind of, the idea of being conserving the necessary institutions um, for social and cultural and political stability that ensure our freedom and, and liberties is is quite important. Um, though you've also, Sam, uh, your original pick was going to be a little bit more lighthearted. Yeah, sorry, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. Morgan, Morgan really set me up to talk about um, Ed's book, and it's so it's so enjoyable. Um, but but something lighter I've been watching is um, Friday Night Lights, which is a, a now finished American TV series about a small Texas town and the. Um, 
high school football team in that town. And um, it's it's an amazing show because it's really well made. Characters are almost all really, really sympathetic and really interesting and all basically teenagers, but treated with uh, kind of maturity and treated um, kind of seriously. Um, but it's but what's interesting about it is um, it's a world that's very similar to our own and my own anyway, um, but completely different in so many ways <clears throat> as to feel, <clears throat> excuse me, almost alien. The the kind of obsessive, um, the obsession with high school football, which I mean, I've never even considered that high school football would in, in any sense be important. You know, it wasn't even important when I was at school in high school. Um, and yet in this in this world, it's kind of almost a religion. Um, so it's a really, really, I mean, it's a great, great show, really enjoying it. And um, I think probably uh, might be a kind of an outlet for people who are sick of the world as it is right now and would like uh, basically a really well-made soap opera. And you don't need to know anything about American football. I don't, I've never seen a game of American football in my life. I don't know anything about it. And yet the, the TV show totally hooked me. Morgan, did you have a lot of uh, American football in high school? Was it was it as uh, aggressive and over the top at your school as you sometimes see in movies and TV shows? I have a, a very boring answer to this, and it's no. My school was too small to have its own football team, so we had to partner uh. with the school next one town over, um, and we weren't very good, um, and no one really watched the games. We were a bigger uh, baseball and and soccer school. Ooh, soccer! How how controversial a term. <laughs> I still I'm still very find it very difficult to call soccer football and football soccer. But I'm I promise I'm integrating into your culture, Sam. I'm trying my hardest. Uh, uh, so my <laughs> my pick this week is uh, East West Street, which is a, a book from a couple of years ago from Philippe Sands. Um, he had a more recent book that I saw reviewed, which kind of led me to his first book, which um, basically is kind of part personal. Um, trail of his kind of family history but also putting that through uh the kind of quite intense context of uh, the discovery of some international law related to crimes against humanity and genocide and looking at the Nuremberg trials um uh, particularly against Hans Frank um and and how those those two concepts in law and in international law were really basically uh, created by these these two um men who came from the same city uh, that his family came from in what was Poland and and the USSR and I think is now in Ukraine, um, Lviv. Uh, so it follows, and I'm going to completely butcher these names, but um, Raphael Lemkin and Hiresh um, Londerpacht, who both managed to escape the Holocaust um, and were both kind of lawyers who studied at the same university but had a very different concept of, of human rights. Um, one of them uh, was was focused on the idea of uh, genocide, which is a, a crime against a group of people, the, the destruction of the Jewish people, or um, as a, you know now we homosexuals and, and uh, other racial and ethnic minorities, as as an idea. Um, and then on the other end of that is crimes against humanity, which is more of kind of an individualist crime, which is the individual crimes you do to individuals within humanity. And that conflict we have between seeing rights. Uh, as a group based in international law often um, and then kind of I suppose the more liberal perspective which I personally have more sympathies with that the right should be on an individual level um, and part of the concern about genocide is that you end up creating those identity based groups that you don't really want and you create, create that discrimination hatred between groups if you go down the path of identity identity politics uh, which is obviously becomes a lot of the critique and I, I think we all constantly have this struggle which is where often um, as liberals, we want to see people's rights as, as individuals, but at the same time, uh, we 
also accept the fact that we're part of a lot of different groups and our identity is, is often very tribal and very group-based uh, for, for all different sorts of reasons and, and how we protect those rights. We, we protect people's um, freedoms and liberties when, when they're being attacked, both as individuals and groups, is, is quite a challenge. And we're seeing that again today with the things like Black Lives Matter movement. No, I, I have nothing to add to it. It's very serious. I was going to mention that I have um, kittens as well. And, <laughs> um, I, and I'm, I'm watching my two kittens play with each other in the uh, in the background as I as I listen to you and um, it's obviously not appropriate given how serious the content of what you've just been talking about uh, but but they are very cute and um, I've been enjoying uh, being a, a cat owner again. Thank you very much Morgan and Sam for joining the pilot episode of The Pin Factory, the new podcast from the Adam Smith Institute. We look forward to returning every week to deep dive into the issues defining our world. 